Hello, and welcome back to the final episode of Spooky Scary Science Club. I'm Liv. And I'm Mick, and we're wrapping up our special episodes with a spellbinding finish. Joining us today is Catherine Howe to talk about witch trials, the origin of people's beliefs in witches, and how science and witchcraft connect. We recorded this interview a few months ago, so Catherine's new book, A True Account, is out now. We hope you'll enjoy this last dose of spine-tingling science, and next week we'll be back to normal weird science. So let's venture into the woods and knock on the door of that strange little cottage. Catherine Howe, welcome to After School Science Club. Before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I'm a novelist and a historian who mostly specializes in stories from America, from North America. And I'm probably best associated with stories about witches and witchcraft because I've written a novel called The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, which wondered what if one of the Salem witches were the real thing, but not the real thing the way that you expect with a pointy hat and the and magic. What if they were real the way the colonists actually believe them to be? And I followed that with a sort of follow-on story with some of the same characters called The Daughters of Temperance Hobbs and a young adult book called Conversion, which looked at the afflicted girls' side of the Salem witch panic. And um, I also have sort of a sideline in being the co-author for Anderson Cooper's popular history book, Vanderbilt and After, which is coming out in September. And so mostly I write historical fiction, sometimes with a magic twist, um, but the one that I have coming out this coming November is a pirate story called A True Account, uh, which doesn't have a magic twist, but is nevertheless a pretty rollicking and fun story. So I spend a lot of time um, staring off into space and thinking about things that happened a long time ago. So I'm a lot of fun at parties. That actually sounds pretty great. So what can you tell us about the witch trials that occurred uh, from the 15th to the 18th century? Well, 18th century is sort of the the, the last trailing end of it. Um, one of the things that was really fascinating to me in thinking about witchcraft and witch trials more specifically and why I started writing fiction about them was that it was this moment before the scientific revolution had really entered popular consciousness. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, the assumptions that we hold about the world that we live in that we don't really examine. And so we all live in a post-scientific revolution moment. We actually also all live in a post-Freudian moment, whether we ascribe to Freudian psychoanalysis or not. It's very comfortable for us to talk about our subconscious and our subconscious motivations. But that is a habit of mind. That is a very 20th century and later habit of mind. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about how did we think about reality when our world was organized in a different way? And so in continental Europe and then spreading up into what is now the UK and then of course into what the time were British colonies, um, there, were, there was a confusion between correlation and causation. And even now, for those of us who are steeped in the scientific method, that can be a very kind of difficult thing to tangle apart. Um, but in a pre-scientific revolution moment, those, those things were almost impossible to tangle apart. And so broadly, what happened was there was a moment where for about 300 years, um, it was pretty common for people to be assumed that they were witches if they were somehow out of step with the culture in which they happened to find themselves living. 
So the one that I'm most conversant with is the one that the last big moment in the period of what's been called the witch crazes, which was the Salem witch trials that happened in um, Massachusetts in 1692, which is very late from a witch witch craze standpoint. Um, But broadly speaking, a lot of people who for various reasons were kind of out of step with a very rigid and strict and hierarchical religious structure living in a worldview that did not understand that there was a worldview outside of Christianity and more specifically outside of Reformation, Protestant Christianity. Um, In this very rigid worldview with a confusion of correlation and causation, people who were socially vulnerable for whatever reason um, could often be thought to be witches or accused as witches. And in many instances, those accusations could spread pretty widely. And so that is what I've spent a lot of time thinking about. You said about religious beliefs there. How did, because not all the witches, right, were, or quote unquote witches, were women, right? But the majority, to my knowledge, were. So how did gender then play a role in that? That's a good question. Um, At least speaking about trials in North America, so that, which is my, I'll focus on that area just because that's my area of expertise, if that's all right. Um, Broadly construed, in the early modern period, it was a society that was very rigidly organized according to a hierarchy. And as you can imagine, that hierarchy was based both on gender, but also on conditions of servitude. So the people at the top were educated white men, and the people shortly below that were uh, women who were somehow associated with those men, usually married to them, with, you know, tracking down to children and servants and slaves below that. And so um, the reason that witches were most widely considered to be women were, there are many reasons for that. It's Salem in specific. Most men who were accused as witches were accused because they were already associated with a woman who was already accused. So for instance, some of the characters, for lack of a better word, that people are most familiar with in the Salem Panic um, you know, John Proctor, who was dramatized in The Crucible, he ended up being accused because he was married to Elizabeth Proctor, who was accused first. Or the other sort of infamous male witch in Salem was Giles Corey, the man who was pressed to death between stones and gasped out more weight. Giles Corey was accused after his wife, Martha, was accused. And so the reasons for this were a couple. Um, oftentimes, women who were accused as witches in sort of isolated examples, tended to be women who were vulnerable and at the outskirts of society. Salem is a little bit unusual in that it starts with accusations aimed at women who are vulnerable and at the outskirts of their society, but it gradually moves its way up the class hierarchy. Um, but generally speaking, women who are accused as witches are women who would typically be at their peak of their social power. So you know, I'm a woman in my 40s, it would be a woman sort of like me, married, with a child, in my 40s, a time when you should be kind of at your social peak of influence and responsibility. And so women who were at that stage of life, it's different from kind of the fairy tale conception of the witch that we have, because in a fairy tale conception of witch, witches are old, they're haggard and bent and broken. Um, But basically, statistically, Women who were accused as witches in the early modern period in North America 
uh, were women who were at middle age from their 40s into their 60s and who, for whatever reason, were out of step with their culture. Maybe they were not married. Maybe they had never had children. Maybe they were slightly too interested in other people's children. There's a lot of kind of discourse around witchcraft and beliefs in witchcraft that is this perversion of maternal tropes. And so there's a weird tangling together of witches as being like a perversion of what women are supposed to do and what women are supposed to value. And so the reason that gender plays into it in such a way is because women were socially powerful, but also not legally powerful. And so women were in that way more vulnerable to accusations. So there's kind of a sexual component to it. There's a gender politics component to it. There's definitely a power component to it. I'm interested. How were people, quote unquote, tested for witchcraft in the trials? This is a tricky, a tricky thing. Um, and it gives you an insight a little bit into what the scientific method looks like before the scientific method. Um, there were three primary tests in heavy, heavy quotes uh, for witches at this time period. One was um, so-called spectral evidence. In Salem, one of the biggest theological debates, one that gripped theologians you know, into a froth in, during 1692. In fact, there was a debate between two famous divines, Increase Mather and his son Cotton Mather, was whether or not spectral evidence um, or the way to weigh spectral evidence. What is spectral evidence? Spectral evidence is when, imagine that you, Mick, are uh, testifying against me, all right? And you say, I saw the shape of Goody Howe come in at the window, and she told me that she murdered Goody Gaskell's daughter. So the question then is, is not whether I sent my shape out to haunt you in the night. That was assumed to be something that was factually possible, okay? Why would I lie about that? Why would you lie about it? The question was actually whether or not the devil could assume the shape of an innocent person. Some people thought that he could. Some people thought that he couldn't, but the, the Calvinists living in colonial Massachusetts in this time period absolutely believed that it was a factual certainty that the devil could go around in the world assuming shapes and affecting reality. And in fact, one of the quotes from one of the Bible quotes that comes up so often in um, these sort of accounts of the witch trials or in theological debates about the witch trials is, I'm not, I'm going to massacre it, so hopefully you'll forgive me, but the devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeking what he may devour. So people living in this time period absolutely believed that it was factual that the devil would go about and affect changes in the world. And so it was an open question whether or not in the test, the pretend testimony that you just gave, whether it was really my shape or whether the devil actually could impersonate me, even if I were innocent, even if I were not a witch who had promised my soul. Another possibility, a sort of a test, um, or one of the common kind of, let's call it evidence that might be given against someone in a witch trial was, and this gets us back to the correlation and causation confusion, was um, conflict followed by maleficium. So let's, let's go back to our pretend example where I'm the questionable witch. And pretend that I am a, so here I am, I'm in my 40s, and pretend like my life has gone in a bad direction. Um, I've Maybe my husband absconded with my money, and I am destitute, and I have to go from door to door in a very small village where everybody knows everyone else, and where everyone is economically completely interdependent, 
and also living in a moment that is before what some historians have come to call the consumer revolution of the early 18th century, where it was a little bit easier and more affordable to get household goods. So in the 1690s, in colonial Massachusetts, household goods were very dear. They were very hard to come by. Food was hard to come by. And economic survival was based on positive personal interrelationships. There was no such thing as, you know, relief funds that one could one could apply to. So pretend that I come to Liv's door and I bang on the door and she sees me coming and maybe I've come before. And maybe I knock on the door and I ask her for something to eat. And maybe she's busy. She's she's harassed. She's got a ton of kids. She's got her mother-in-law bothering her. She's busy. It's a stressful day. And I ask her for some, something to eat and she doesn't have anything extra. And maybe I just asked her for something last week. She doesn't have anything extra to give me. And maybe she tells me, go away, goody how. I can't, I can't help you today, all right? And maybe I say, you'll regret it if you don't help me. And then I go away muttering under my breath. Well, maybe I mean, when I say that, maybe I mean that she'll regret it because she is denying me Christian charity. Maybe it speaks ill of her that she wouldn't help me when I'm her neighbor and I'm in need. But imagine that shortly after I go away muttering, there's some sort of accident. Maybe she's churning butter and the butter doesn't come together, right? Um, this sounds like a small thing, but in the home-based economies of the 1690s, this is actually a big deal if your butter doesn't come together. Or maybe the beer goes bad. Also, sounds like a small thing is actually a huge thing in the 1690s. So later on at my witch trial, Liv might come along and say, one time, five years ago, Goody Howe came to my door and she said I would regret it if I didn't help her. And that very same day, my butter didn't come together. That those, The juxtaposition of those two facts would be very damning evidence uh, against me. And then perhaps the third most notorious piece of evidence in heavy quotes um, against people who were on trial for witchcraft was looking so the searching of the body for the witch, what was called the witch's teat. So getting back to the point I made earlier about how so much of the kind of popular belief about witchcraft was an inversion of maternal imagery or maternal structures, it was widely believed in the early modern period that witches, after they made their pact with the devil, um, would then be given an imp, which was like a little demon, um, to do their bidding and help them out. So in, in a Halloween costume, you've got your witch, you've got your pointy hat, you've got your broom, and you have your little black cat. The little black cat is the imp that would help the witch uh, in doing her work. And if you look at the trial transcripts from Salem, there's a lot of different kinds of imps. There's, quote, a thing like a cat. Um, there's a thing like a dog with the face of a woman. Um, there's, there's frogs. There's little snakes. And it was widely believed that witches had to suckle these imps on their body. But the, the teats for suckling the imps wouldn't be breasts. They would be somewhere else on the body, between the fingers, between the toes, on your ribs, on your legs. Perhaps the most notorious version of this is Rebecca Nurse, who was one of the earliest people who was accused during the Salem Panic, and who was also a very widely respected and valued member of the community in Salem Village. Her, she is an older woman. I, if I remember correctly, she's in her 70s. She's a little bit older than the age group that we're talking about here. But she has her clothes stripped off and they find on her body an excrescence of flesh between the pudendum and the anus, which most historians have 
seen as a description of the clitoris, right? And so what more damning evidence could there be? Um, of course, you could say, how could anyone not know that this is a normal part of a woman's body? Well, the answer is by the time you're having your naked body searched for a witch's teeth, they're going to find something, whether it is an actual anomalous third nipple, whether it is a mole, whether it is a zit, whether it's a boil, pretty much anything will do. But that was some of the most damning physical evidence that was often entered against uh, women who were tried as witches at Salem. People often believe that it's faulty scientific assumptions that gave rise to belief in witchcraft. But now there's research that's challenging that belief. So was there sort of an internally consistent early science that led to people believing in witches and blaming them for their problems? Or is the debate more complex than that now? Well, I would say that that, that is conflating two different things. And so on the one hand, during the early modern period, there were sort of folk magical beliefs, popular magical beliefs that were very widely held. And so one of these examples is um, early on in the Salem panic, before, they, before there were trials, um, when there were young girls who were afflicted with some sort of strange affliction and they couldn't figure out what it was. And the people at Salem weren't, you know, they weren't stupid. They weren't uneducated. They were just operating within a, a very different intellectual and religious universe from our own. So the first thing they did, believe it or not, was call a doctor. Um, the doctor couldn't find anything physically wrong with the girls who were so afflicted. Then they had many public fast and prayer days because in the Calvinist belief system, it was believed that there was nothing you could do to guarantee your membership in the elect or your access into heaven. You couldn't say a rosary. You couldn't by an indulgence. There was nothing you could do to obtain grace. The only thing you could do was hope that grace would be granted to you, which is a somewhat existentially devastating worldview to hold, particularly if you're living on the edge of a wilderness that's peopled by people already who live there who don't understand what you're doing. So then there was there was a series of days of fasting and prayer in the hope that God would deliver them from this affliction that had been brought onto their community. Well, while they were in the days of fasting and prayer and sort of self-recrimination that was happening, a villager named Mary Sibley suggested that what they should do is they should bake a witch cake. They should solve the, the, the illness by baking a witch, cake, a witch cake. If you're wondering to yourself, what is the recipe for witch cake? I will tell you. First, you take urine from the afflicted girls. Then you mix it with rye meal. Then you bake it into a biscuit. And then you feed that biscuit to a dog. And this was believed to work in one of two possible ways. One was in passing, you know, the water from the afflicted girls, it could cause the enchantment to pass out of their bodies and then into the body of the dog. That's one way it was thought to work. Another way it was thought it might work was that the act of bewitching someone between witcher and witchy would create a kind of corresponding relationship between the two of them. So that if you took a small part of the body of the suffering girls and munched it up, had a dog munch it up, then the witch would feel her body munched up and would therefore release them from their enchantment. So one of the more common ways, for instance, if there was a cow who had been a really reliable milk cow and who all of a sudden stopped being able to give milk and it was believed that um, an enchantment or a witch was responsible, one way that it was believed at this time period to get rid of the enchantment on the cow was to beat the cow, pity the poor cow. 
but the the idea being that the pain inflicted on the cow would then inflict pain on the witch and would cause the witch to release the cow. Science, folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so the witch cake, so Mary Sibley supervised having the witch cake baked and then fed to a dog. Obviously, this didn't do anything to free the girls from their, their supposed bewitchment. But what's interesting to me about this is that Mary Sibley does not then go on to be accused as a witch herself. She's employing folk magical practices. And that sounds sort of arcane when I describe that process. But even today, if you look around, you know, people still hang horseshoes over their doors for good luck. You know, I'm still I'm wearing my grandmother's wedding ring today to make me feel more confident because it gives me a sense that she is with me. The word that we use for that mode of thinking is an heirloom. It's an heirloom. That's the special value it has. But actually, really, if we're honest, I'm ascribing a kind of magical power to it because of who it belonged to. I'm treating it like a talisman. So even though we live in this modern era, you know, we still live in a world that is enmeshed by these kinds of folk, cultural, and uh, magical beliefs and practices. We just don't often call them that anymore. Would you say it's like superstition? I would say it's like superstition. I feel like it carries a value judgment that I'm not intending to apply to it. Because in many instances, you know, one thing that's interesting to me is to try to, as, at least as, a, as an author, is to try to think about things that I absolutely assume to be true that in 200 years will seem crazy. And there are a lot of those, like, I don't know what those things are because I assume them to be true, but it's, it's much easier to evaluate those kinds of, you know, modes of thinking or errors of thinking in retrospect. Um, but we all live in this moment that is historically contingent and that is historically populated. And so it's, something that is of an ongoing interest to me in different periods of time, things that are assumed to be true in one moment and that become cast aside 200 years later. So superstition, I think, yes, technically, but I'm also trying to show a little bit more respect to modes of thought that are occupying a unrecognizably distant period of time. So was belief in witchcraft linked to early or non-traditional medicine? Uh, that's a common question and actually a bit of a misconception. Um, and it came about because there was some work that was done by Barbara Ehrenreich, among others, um, hypothesizing that there might have been a connection between people tried as witches and people who were so-called cunning folk. And there were cunning folk in most communities in this time period. And a cunning person is someone you'd go to for like maybe for bone setting or for a charm for something, or maybe for water dousing, pretty common phenomenon. And in fact, here I'm talking to you from a town called Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is one town over from Salem. And we have a house in town that belonged to an 18th century self-proclaimed wizard um, who was someone that the mariners would go to for weather charm, for good weather time. So there is that, that's kind of part of what we were talking about before with Mary Sibley and with folk magical practice. There is that that does exist. But for the most part, people who were accused as witches were not the practitioners of those things. People who were accused as witches were Christians who didn't fit in. So like they were people who were maybe a little bit weird, a little bit off-putting. You know, one of my favorite examples um, comes from the work of John, a historian named John Dima, and her name was Rachel Clinton. And she, she was kind of pre-Salem, 
So she was sort of her own thing. And she had she had a suspicious nature for a very long time. But the reason that Rachel Clinton was suspected as a witch was because she had a very sad life. Like she was probably, there's probably just something a little bit off about her. She married, she was from a wealthy family in Massachusetts. She married a little bit late, which is surprising given her class background. The guy she married was not a suitable match. He was not someone she had known forever and ever, who was known to everyone in town. He was a transient guy. And then the transient guy absconded with all her money. And so here's this woman, as we were talking before, you know, when she should be at her most powerful, when she's in her 40s, she's in her mid midlife, she should be the head of a, a wealthy, successful, well-established family. Well, instead, she's destitute. And more than that, she started at the top of the social hierarchy, and here she's gone plunging to the bottom. And at one point, the reason Rachel Clinton is so poignant to me is because there's this description of like one of the testimonies against her. She is described as hunching a woman of quality with her elbow when she passes her in the meeting house. And I love this detail because it tells us so much about Rachel. It tells us like many things. One, Rachel is not a woman of quality anymore. A. B. She is now sitting back in the meeting house. Like everyone can see how far she's fallen, right? And C, when she's angry. And when she gets angry, she gets physical. She lashes out. All of these are things that are not socially acceptable in her community and, and for her class. Like she is enraged about what's happened to her. And furthermore, there are so many instances of, you know, we like to imagine ourselves as being compassionate to people who are in our community and who are suffering. But there's also this sense of there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like Rachel Clinton could be, could have stood in front of her community as this cautionary tale somehow. And it's also a very unfortunate but true human characteristic to want to distance ourselves from cautionary tales. You can imagine people in Rachel's community wanting to keep her at arm's length. If she's angry, she's had all these terrible things happen to her. And when she gets angry, she's physical. That's not someone that you want to sit next to. That's not someone you want to go out of your way to help. And so generally speaking, people who were accused as witches were accused because they didn't fit in for whatever reason, not because of anything that they did, not because of anything that they practiced. There are like a tiny handful of people accused as witches in colonial Massachusetts who may have sort of enjoyed their reputation. Like this one guy, John Godfrey, who's unusual as being an accused male witch who was not married um, and who worked, he was sort of itinerant. He worked as a a herder uh, with livestock. He tended to like take boys under his wing um, he, and he seemed to enjoy maybe a little bit having a bad reputation or having a reputation of someone who knew about witchy things. Um, but for the most part, he was, that's the exception. Generally, people who were accused of witches were accused, be, not because of anything that they did um, and not because of any involvement with folk magical beliefs or with cures, but because they were the wrong kind of person. Given my uh, track record of fitting in, I'm very glad I was born in the era I was. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. One of the things Giles Corey says about his wife, Martha, is that she's been seen reading too many books. And I'm here to tell you, like, not only because I happen to be related to people accused as witches, but if I were living in the 17th century, too many books, easily angered, like hard to get along with, iconoclastic, lonesome. Absolutely. I am right up there with you, Max. The books thing would have me. 
Oh like, yes, I'd absolutely. Be, I'd be a witch straight away. Like you cannot pry me from the books. And I have to say too, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but but one of my most favorite rejoinders ever delivered by anyone, like actually the most badass thing that I think anyone has ever said in the history of, certainly the history of North America, uh, was delivered by Sarah Good from the Gallows and at Salem. And Sarah Good was one of the first three people accused. And she was kind of, she was kind of a usual suspect person who was accused. The first three people who, who were accused by the afflicted girls, Abigail and Betty and the rest, were Tichuba Indian, the enslaved indigenous woman living in Samuel Paris's household, um, who confesses Tichuba, which is unusual. She First she denies it, and then a day goes by, and then she appears the next day, and she gives a confession and there have been some historians who've argued that she was beaten in between, that she may have been beaten into confessing. She confesses, and then the most most importantly for Salem's purposes, she introduces the idea of there being a conspiracy, that there are other witches, and she doesn't know how many there are. This is one of the things that sets Salem aside from other smaller witch trials in North America in this time period. The Tichibit Indian is, is accused. And then Sarah Osborne, who has been skipping church and who has like who's widowed and has been has taken up with a much younger lover. Um, and then the other is Sarah Good. And Sarah Good was destitute. She was a beggar who hadn't been in church for want of clothes, was the quote. Um, but of course, today if we say I have nothing to wear, that means I have nothing cute to wear. But in the 17th century, it means she literally is dressed in rags and she is ashamed to show up in the meeting house dressed in rags. And Sarah Good is a particularly poignant example because she's imprisoned with a baby and the baby dies while she's in prison. And she's imprisoned with uh, a, her young daughter, uh, Dorothy, who's about four years old. And the rigors of being in prison for that long, Dorothy loses her mind. And in 1710, uh, her father ends up suing the town for her support because she, the, the quote is, she being very chargeable, having no mastery over herself. Like she, she can't support herself because she completely lost her mind. So here's Sarah Good, tattered, like angry, on the outs with her society probably for a longish time. She's on the gallows. And she says, I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink, which is the most badass thing that anyone's ever said ever. And Nathaniel Hawthorne actually took that line and put it in the mouth of Matthew Maul in the House of the Seven Gables. But of course, like Matthew Maul's a dude. It wasn't a dude. It was Sarah Good said that. Sarah Good said that. And I want the world to know that Sarah Good said that because she's braver than me. They will definitely know that after this. <laughs> I mean, you're in worse trouble for witchcraft than the rest of us because you don't just love books, you write them. I know, right? No, it's very dangerous. So witch trials did eventually die down kind of toward the late 17th century. What factors contributed to that decline and how were advances in science involved? I think it was one of those things where there were a few factors. Salem was a little bit, Salem, as I said, happened in 1692 and it was kind of a last gasp. It was later than pretty much any of the major trials that happened in what is now the UK or in continental Europe. And by 1705, there was a published, highly skeptical account of what had happened at Salem called More Wonders of the Invisible World by a guy named John Caleb. And then by 1710, there were two apologies issued by people who had been involved. And one was from an afflicted girl named Anne Putnam Jr. 
um, who is actually dramatized in my novel, Conversion. And the other is by one of the judges, um, Samuel Sewell. And interestingly with Samuel Sewell, he doesn't come to believe that there are no witches or that there is no Satan. He instead comes to believe that they, the town suffered a delusion of Satan. They were somehow tricked. But he also comes to this conclusion after what he, like a few experiences of so-called wonders and marvels. Like he believes his house was pelted with stones from heaven. And like his daughter, I think, has a some kind of like religious crisis or something. So there, there's still, there's an interesting shift that's happening, a, a mental and religious shift that's happening as the 18th century dawns. But from my perspective, the real changing, the real, the real thing that changed was the consumer revolution. You know, manufacturing techniques change. This is when you see the founding of Wedgwood, which is sort of like a mass-produced dishes, which you wouldn't think would be a big deal, but actually is kind of a big deal. Um, you see, like, by the time you get into the 1720s and 1730s, life just gets a little bit easier. There's more trade. There's a little bit more money. There's, you know, life is just a little bit more comfortable for your average person. It starts to become cheaper even to buy your poultry than to raise it yourself, um, things like that. And so, honestly, if you look at so much of what is at stake in witch trials, it's so many domestic cares. It's so much about household work. It's about beer. It's about butter. It's about mysteriously dead livestock. It's about, you know, Samuel Paris causes a problem because he demands to be paid with more firewood um, because he's in a little ice age. It's cold. He's going through too much firewood. You know, it's, it's this stuff of everyday life that in the 1690s or in the 17th century in general is just that much harder to get. And by the time you get to, say, the 1730s, it's just that much easier to get. And what's interesting is there are a couple of witch trials that happen in the North American colonies at the beginning of the 18th century. One of them, I think, happens in 1705, if I remember correctly, and it's of a woman in Virginia um, who is ducked. They use a ducking stool for her, which is not something that was widely done or done at all in North America, uh, to the extent that they like read about it in a book. And they're like, oh, it says here we should duck her. We don't know what that means. They build a ducking stool. They duck her. And then they don't know how to interpret the results. They're all like looking it up in a book and stuff because they're so, they're so removed from the witch crazes of the earlier part of the 17th century. And that witch ends up not being put to death. And so the thing that's most striking to me is the change in the anti-witchcraft statutes that happens in Britain in, I think it's 1732. And this is why my hypothesis is that it is really about the consumer revolution. The anti-witchcraft statute changes that it is no longer a felony to be a witch. Before that point, being a witch was a felonious offense, just like being a murderer, which is why witches were punished by hanging. Um, so that's actually a common misconception too. Witches were not burned at the stake in North America because that was a an ecclesiastical punishment and witches were tried on a judicial or like legal state basis also what a waste of firewood uh indeed exactly in a little ice age why would you waste that much firewood um but witches all all the witches at salem were hanged except for the guy who was crushed to death between stones but i digress so in 1732 the anti-witchcraft statute wording changes 
and it becomes against the law to present yourself as if you are a witch. So that means it's now illegal for me to come along and say, hey, Liv, do you need, do you need a, a charm? Do you need a love charm? I can sell you one. It'll definitely work. You know, and so in effect, what becomes illegal is con being a con artist. But what's interesting to me about that shift is there are two things that are interesting to me about that shift. One is that it suggests that the belief in witchcraft persists, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't have to protect people from their own belief, from wanting to go to visit a cunning person, to buy a charm, to do this, to do that. Um, so the belief is still there, but the meaning is much less acute. It's much less important what is being on offer or suspected of witches. And the reason it is less important, the reason it is less acute, is because of the consumer revolution, because average everyday people have life just a little bit easier by the time you get to the 1730s. Fast forward to today, and I ask this as the biggest Hocus Pocus fan, um, <laughs> how have the witch trials, especially those in Salem, influence pop culture today? Well, it's, I mean, in so many ways is the unsatisfying opening answer. Um, one thing that's interesting to me about witchcraft is the way that it has changed over time, and especially beginning in the 19, so we see beginning in the 1930s, a folklorist named Gerald Gardner kind of collected together some of these folk magical beliefs that we were talking about and codified them into the earliest form of what we would now call Wicca, which is modern day witchcraft, which has actually been identified and, and sort of accepted as a religion. In fact, you can be buried in Arlington National Cemetery, which is the like, like national cemetery for war veterans in the United States. Um, and you can have a cross if you're Christian, a, a Jewish star if you're Jewish, a you know, crescent if you're Muslim, and a pentagram if you are Wiccan. That is actually something that you can do. So that begins in the 1930s, but it really takes off, at least in North America, it really takes off in the 1970s because of the way that it talks about the sacred feminine and the way that it talks about gender. And of course, in the 1970s, this is when we see the growth of second wave feminism. And so even today, much of what you see in modern day Wicca and modern paganism is very much kind of in dialogue with these questions of gender, questions of power, questions of relationship with the earth and with authenticity and with so-called old knowledges and things like that. And one thing I find striking is, at least in popular culture, a lot of day, my, my understanding is a lot of modern day Wiccans and pagans feel a very strong sense of kinship or identification with people who were tried as witches in the past even though people who were tried as witches in the past were not Wiccans at all. They were Christians, as I've said, who didn't fit into the world in which they were living. But I think that there's something to be said for that identification, for the, the sense of um, solidarity with people who have been persecuted in the past. Um, I think that that's worthwhile. And certainly in, in literature and in film, there is no shortage of different ways to explore questions of witches and, and witchcraft and, you know, between Hocus Pocus or whether it's Harry Potter or whether it's a physic book of deliverance thing, um, each of which has their own distinct take on some of these old stories and heritages and histories. So then speaking of pop culture, just before we go, remind us about your books, your new books um, and what you're up to now. 
Thank you. So I continue to be uh, perhaps somewhat unhealthily obsessed with colonial era Massachusetts. And as a result, my forthcoming novel is called A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. And basically, it is it starts with a real uh, trial for piracy that actually happened in Boston in 1726. In 1726, a guy named William Fly, um, who uh, led a mutiny on a merchant ship because of, quote, hard usage, unquote, he led a mutiny. And he tried to get a guy to lead him to Martha's Vineyard for water, but instead the guy tricked him and took him all the way back to Boston where William Fly was arrested. And William Fly was tried and publicly hanged along with his Confederates in a trial that interestingly enough was presided over by none other than Cotton Mather, who I mentioned earlier, who was like one of the chief theologians and, and guys commenting on and writing about, he actually wrote the first book about the Salem witch trials. He wrote Wonders of the Invisible World, the same guy. Um, and Poor William Fly was then gibbeted. I don't know if you know what gibbeting is. So he was hanged in public. Everyone was watching when he was hanged. And then his body was hung up in chains on a tiny island called Nix's Mate at the mouth of Boston Harbor and left there to rot in 1726. And he was left there under, under the black flag that he had been raiding under. And he was left there as a public warning against other people who might go... Um, who might go into piracy. And so the story that I end up telling is a, is a fictional story, but it is based a bit in fact. Um, and it talks, it goes into a lot of the same sorts of issues that I like to explore in my witch-related fiction, which is questions of gender, questions of power, questions of class. Um, but this one happens on the high seas and um, there's some, there's, it's a little more bloody. <laughs> we'll look forward to seeing it. Thank you so much, Catherine, for being here with us today, for educating us on witches and witchcraft and how they interplay with science. And we'll look forward to seeing your book out soon. Thank you so much. It was such a delight to join you both. Thank you for joining us for the last episode of Spooky Scary Science Club. Next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled science fun with After School Science Club. But in the meantime, we strongly recommend listening to today's episode all the way to the end. If you've enjoyed this digression into the science of supernatural, let us know. And like always, feel free to drop us an email at cyclopodcast at gmail.com if you want to suggest an episode topic or even a future special series theme. In the meantime, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Okay, now you got to do your cackle. Okay, it might take me a few turns, right? <laughs> Don't judge me. Wait, let me just warm up. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hate myself. Okay. No, that sounds like a cat. <laughs> let me try again. No. How did I do it before? I don't know how to make it any better. <laughs>